You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 23rd of January, 2019, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, just as the U.S. threatens to pull out of Afghanistan, the Taliban launches one of the deadliest attacks in years on security services. The country's chief executive is in Davos this week, where he is urging world leaders not to give up on the country. My guests Samir Shackle and Carlo Benura will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... China's military might has long been of great concern to its neighbors. But how are they feeling as Beijing overhauls the armed forces to create a more offensive threat? And we know a thing or two about branding around here, but what's in a name for politicians? Jailed for blasphemy, Jakarta's former governor is hoping a change to his popular nickname will bolster his aspirations. All that plus James Dyson, a prominent Brexiteer and the head of Dyson, says he's moving the company's headquarters to Singapore. We dig into the Brexit hypocrisy. All to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Samira Shackle, a journalist specializing in social affairs, politics, race, and South Asia, writing for The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Monocle, and many others. Also, Carlo Benura, a senior teaching fellow in Southeast Asian politics at SOAS. Welcome both to the program and back to Midori House. We begin tonight by turning our attention to Afghanistan, where the country's chief executive is urging world leaders not to give up on the country. Abdullah Abdullah was speaking earlier today at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. This after the Trump administration suggested the United States could withdraw troops and a truck attack on an Afghan intelligence base in Wardak province earlier this week, where at least 40 intelligence personnel were killed and 60 others wounded. The attack was one of the deadliest against the intelligence service in the long-running war with the Taliban. The U.S. helped to overthrow the Taliban, of course, after September 11th. Troops have been stationed there over those past 18 years. Samira, uh, first of all, there are some uh, competing headlines on the attack I've just mentioned. Let's perhaps start there. The Afghan intelligence agency says uh, the mastermind of the attack was killed in an airstrike, but residents, local officials in the area say uh, the airstrike was actually targeting a group of hunters. Uh, <laughs> what's happening here? Yeah, it's really difficult to know. I think it just demonstrates the um, kind of poor infrastructure and communication systems, particularly once you get outside the major urban centers in Afghanistan. And mm. I suppose to an extent, uh, kind of contesting stories from war zones is quite typical, but there's a real kind of void of clear clear information. You know, we've even seen for several years, uh, the Afghan government hasn't released any figures at all about casualties amongst uh, security personnel. It was only in the last couple of months that they that they did that. Uh, this is significant, perhaps, uh, because of the scale of the attack. In, in a sad and very violent way, it puts Afghanistan back in the headlines just before the chief executive uh, was to appear in Davos this week. That's sort of an interesting turn of events, uh, considering what he's talking about there, Carlo. Yeah, I think there are a number of interesting uh, timings here. One is obviously um, the trip to end the speech in Davos. Uh, there's also this uh, issue of the United States potentially pulling out of Afghanistan. There's also a kind of um, embryonic peace process, which is just kind of beginning. Uh, and I think all of the, it's very hard to figure out if this is the um, Taliban trying to uh, prove its uh, or leverage its position prior to these talks or if it's trying to derail the talk somehow. Uh, this is something that uh, I don't think we can know uh, in 
uh, for, for sure. But mm. certainly the timings here, it's not just a trip, but also these other. I think the, the, what this is going to do for these peace talks, which are in which the uh, Taliban and the Afghan government are not talking to each other. Mm-hmm. That's also an interesting dynamic. Um, yeah, what, what this will have on that, what, what effect this will have on that process is interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Samir, one of those peace talks in Davos, actually, Abdullah Abdullah, um, seemed quite open about bringing the Taliban to the table, and 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 he really wants to build a dialogue here. But this, the issues that have always uh, gone on here that that maybe are preventing that. Mm, absolutely, um, the kind of. Um, noises coming out of the peace process so far, which is quite a, obviously quite embryonic uh, peace process, is that it's going better than past attempts uh, have gone. I mean, that's in um, on several fronts, just kind of immediately. Which is, firstly, Ashraf, Ashraf Ghani, the Afghan president, is happy for peace talks to go ahead, although the mm. Taliban won't negotiate with the Afghan government. Whereas the previous president, Hamid Karzai, uh, didn't want to allow that to happen, so that's kind of stalled things. Um, also, the US has agreed to that, and they're sort of talking. But I think that the kind of lots of the central issues do remain, which are. Um, First of all, there's a question mark over how connected this kind of uh, political wing which operates in Qatar is to the military Mm. side of things on the ground in Afghanistan. Some say they're kind of slightly on the fringes and not that much in contact with the military commanders on the ground and that they're generally more open to peace than their their, um, Taliban colleagues in Afghanistan. So there's that question, like how far can they actually speak for that group? Uh, And there's also uh, the kind of sceptics argument, which is that it might be a tactic uh, to kind of string this peace process along while, uh, you know, kind of hanging on to all this territory in Afghanistan and and continuing to to inflict major losses and casualties um, until the point that the US just kind of gets bored and withdraws. Uh, so there's a kind of question mark, I think, over how much good faith uh, the negotiations are in. It does seem to be going better than it has gone so far. But if you look at the kind of um, how far apart the two positions are, uh, the one thing they agree on is not wanting foreign terrorists to be in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, the Taliban's very acutely aware of the ISIS threat and see them as a kind of uh, competitor, as it were. And the US also agrees that's a big threat. So that's something. But, you know, the, the Taliban effectively does want the destruction of the current Afghan state as it stands, which is a pretty big stumbling block, I would say. <laughs> well, the reality, and you sort of alluded it to there, is, is the Afghan police and army have been been dying in record numbers. Intelligence forces have generally suffered fewer casualties, this in part because uh, they have better training and equipment, perhaps, but also more Afghans die than Americans, as, as perhaps has always been the case. But uh, for Donald Trump, Afghanistan just doesn't rate for him, and, and he wants out no matter what. Isn't that right, Carlo? He wants out no matter what, but I, I'm thinking that if we if we look at this in the, uh, that is the um, uh, threat to withdraw troops, if we look at this in the, in the grander scheme of the way in which Donald Trump does the deal, uh, this is classic Trump uh, to create a crisis, to allow pressure to build, uh, and then to um, uh, see what comes out of the negotiations. And so I, I think that it could possibly be that there's a coincidence, like a meaningful coincidence, uh, in the starting of the peace process back in the middle of uh, last year and the threat to withdraw, that the th- threat to withdraw is actually designed to get people uh, to the table. Uh, obviously, with the um, retiring or the uh, resignation of uh, Mathis, the defense secretary, and and a very loud response from both um, the executive branch, members within the executive branch and Congress uh, against the U.S. withdrawal, there's a lot of pressure against Trump to actually uh, to, to make good on this promise. But I think that this is um, – we've seen him do this in, all, in, in a wide variety of other cases, the China – 
Um, the trade war with China is following the same pattern. Uh, we can see this with um, uh, with the way in which he deals with Congress, trying to create these crises. The the, car- the caravan rhetoric is the same thing, trying to create a crisis and see if the, anything will come out of it. Uh, and so this is, I think, follows this pattern. What, there's a, there's obviously a clear geopolitical. Um, threat here, uh, but it may actually be as much trying to facilitate the peace talks. Now, whether that's realistic or not, I think yeah. is a different question. Uh, I want to ask about uh, that geopolitical play and perhaps Iran, but um, Samira Abdullah also calling on Pakistan to do more to help with the Taliban. That's been a constant call and, and with previous administrations as well, uh, Hami Karzai, as you, as you mentioned before, but there also a, a new leader in Islamabad. Has that relationship changed at all? Um, I think that the the kind of fundamentals remain the same. Mm. Uh, so one of the issues um, is that the Pakistani state doesn't really speak with one voice. So you have the, the civilian government, but then um, the, in practice, foreign policy and uh, security policy is decided by the intelligence services. And that includes this kind of uh, never formally acknowledged, but kind of... Um, Everyone, everyone knows that this is the case that Pakistan providing safe haven to Taliban militants um, uh, from from Afghanistan in the northern areas of Pakistan. It's one of the most porous borders in the world. It's very difficult to police people going back and forth. But there's also, uh, you know, a kind of a quite quite explicit policy by the Pakistani intelligence uh, services to allow that to happen because they don't want uh, what they would see as an Indian client state in uh, in Afghanistan. Yeah, that politics in South Asia are so much driven by fear of encirclement and yeah. fear of being surrounded. So it's true. I mean, I think you can't have any kind of uh, meaningful peace in Afghanistan while that persists, and it's hard to see that changing. I don't think Imran Khan, the new uh, Pakistani prime minister, has the either the inclination nor the power to... Uh, to make that happen, um, you know, he's he's very much shown that he's he's kind of the the army's man. I think through the election campaign, and and that's another kind of question mark about the peace process that's going on in Qatar actually, which is that uh, you know there's no reason that you know whatever they're saying in peace talks that the Taliban wouldn't keep this uh, option in reserve of just kind of crossing over into Pakistan and coming back um, when the time is safe or whatever. Fascinating analysis. Uh, Let us turn our attention now to to China. Much of the discussion and reporting this week around the country has been on the slowing economy, the simmering trade war with the U.S. as well, we've also mentioned, and various business and diplomatic spats around the world linked to Huawei. But as we often focus here on Monocle 24, is on the regional clashes and Beijing's wish to stamp its authority on some of its neighbors, neighbors rather, often uh, showing off that military might. Well, recently, an overhaul of China's armed forces has increased concern amongst neighbors, uh, with the People's Liberation Army shifting from being purely a defensive force uh, to one uh, with a little bit more tact offensively. Indeed, troop numbers have been cut with resources for the Navy, Air Force, and Rocket Force, I didn't know exist, uh, and the Strategic Support Force bolstered. Uh, They handle cyber warfare, interesting to note. Uh, Certainly a concern for Beijing, thinking about the country's border considering uh, the neighbors to the west and north, and maybe we'll get into that. But um, it's hard, Carlo, to believe that, that China could be a more aggressive country than it already is. Well, I don't know. Uh, aggressive, I'm not sure is the... This is going to sound strange, but aggressive is not necessarily the right word, or mm. at least it's aggressive to whom, uh, precisely? Because uh, I think that the uh, Chinese military buildup or the shift of forces is meaningful to certain, uh, very meaningful and very threatening to certain states in the region, particularly Taiwan, 
South Korea and Japan. It's also a huge signal to the United States. Uh, and some of the, the obviously the shift in forces is d- directly designed to counter U.S. presence in the region. Uh, if we think about the way in which stealth fighters or hypersonic missiles or increase in uh, surface ships are designed to, you know, it's not Taiwan or Japan to some degree uh, who are creating, uh, who are expanding their forces in these areas. This is a, a direct um, shift with the United States in mind. But if you think about um, Southeast Asia, the relationship with uh, China is not necessarily determined by military strength, even, I would argue, within the South China Sea. These countries have um, complex relations with China, which uh, cut across trade, um, geopolitical, sorry, trade and geopolitical um, uh, let's say, domains. Mm. And uh, for Indonesia, for instance, even though it has actually increased the, the pressure that it can uh, or increased the, the complaints to China regarding its claims over the Natuna Islands in the South China Sea, uh, this is not, nobody imagines this dispute to turn into some type of military dispute anytime soon. So it's interesting that who is counting the number of F-20 jet, or uh, J-20 jets in, mm. uh, in China's Air Force and some of its neighbors, although I think that the they absolutely recognize China's ascendancy, wouldn't necessarily see this type of military buildup necessarily as aggression as much of as a broader context in which they have to do business with China. And mm. whereas some of the the people who are excuse me, some of the countries who are uh, for for whom this is uh, uh, this type of information is directly targeted uh, would definitely see it as a threat. So I think aggression is in effectively the eye of the audience or the sure. reader of the the piece. For Southeast Asia, it's uh, it's far less about aggression as much as it is about this complex field, whereas for the United States and East Asia, perhaps they're more threatened by this. Well, also uh, feeling threatened perhaps is uh, India further to the west, uh, Samir. They, they have, um, they, they're not going to like this, are they, the, the shift in resources? Yeah, I think there's definitely a kind of broader anxiety as well in India about China. I mentioned earlier the kind of fear of encirclement that dominates politics in, in this regional, regional relations. And just as Pakistan is worried about being encircled by India, India is uh, concerned about being encircled by China. And, and they have, uh, they've got a kind of specialist um, think tank uh, government funded which is basically exclusively to to look at China and and military policy but they're also concerned I think about um, huge Chinese uh, economic expansion in the area there's the um, the China-Pakistan economic corridor which goes uh, which will connect China um, through Pakistan to um, to Persian the Persian Sea in the Middle East and India is building a kind of rival trade route um, that goes basically through Afghanistan from Central Asia and there's there's real anxiety not only about kind of being economically overtaken but also that these bases uh, these kind of ports and big infrastructure projects that China is developing all over all over the world really but all mm. over South Asia and Southeast Asia um, there's real anxiety in India that that is a kind of cover for military bases and for military means so I think it goes is much, much deeper than just the restructuring that we've seen recently. Um, really interesting. I wonder, uh, Carlo, you mentioned uh, Taiwan before, uh, what they're thinking of, of this sort of reshuffle and, and how Washington is watching, watching this as well. Well, Taiwan th- appears to be the absolute uh, target in this case. Uh, the idea, I think it was uh, just a couple of weeks ago that the Chinese, uh, one of the Chinese leaders made the claim that they would take Taiwan by any means necessary. Uh, and 
In terms of Washington, I, I don't. This is interesting. This type, these type, this type of reports are interesting in terms of the trade war as well. I think there is a necessity in Washington to to um, at this moment to cast. Uh, um, China as w- one of the, if not the primary, geopolitical threat to the United States, and so this is uh, this is very interesting. There's no real space um, for uh, for U.S. leaders um, to really uh, push back against this or to see some other way in dealing with China. This, there is a fairly aggressive stance coming from uh, Washington D.C. as well. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage, Samira Shackle, and Carlo Bonero. Coming up next, we head to Indonesia, where a politician jailed for blasphemy is hoping to rebrand himself. And Dyson moves from the UK to Singapore, even though the head of the company is a staunch Brexit supporter. How do Europe's business leaders start their day? Everyone seeing the possibility of what reforms could do to unleash the power of the Indian economy is really exciting. Who tracks the stories that really matter like no one else? You're going to take so much money out of the Greek economy that they can't possibly generate growth. You have to manage a transition to a more private-oriented economy. Where can you have a real conversation to kickstart your working day? Uh, you, you don't mean the referendum on gay marriage, do you? <laughs> I don't. Which oh, is that, coming that was up, su- surprising. Which, very interesting. And the International New York Times has a piece. They assume that it will be passed. Mm-hmm. The answer to all these questions is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Weekdays at 7 a.m. in London. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage, still with me, Samira Shackle, and Carlo Benura. We turn our attention to Indonesia now, where former Jakarta governor, Basuki Jahaja, sorry, uh, how do I say that, Carlo? Purnama. No longer wants to be, to be known by his popular Chinese nickname, Ahok, and instead prefers to be known by his initials, BTP, uh, very much easier to pronounce, uh, we can say <laughs> now uh, with, with certainty. Uh, he is serving a jail term on blasphemy charges for comments he made about the Koran. The ethnic Chinese Christian lost the last election, a campaign which was marred by religious tensions. But now he says he's grateful for the loss and the jail term. First of all, Carlo, who is this man? Uh, well, he was a very promising uh, Indonesian politician. The last person who held the governor's position was uh, the current president, Joko Widodo. So many people were seeing Ahok as... Um, uh, I'm not going to use the initials, unfortunately. No. <laughs> <laughs> Many people were seeing Ahok as possibly having a role at the national level, perhaps as vice president or even at some point as president. The, it is, uh, although the um, he, the protests up until in the run up to the um, gubernatorial election two years ago were about religion and about blasphemy. In fact, some of the issues related to this case was about uh, race and about mm-hmm. his Chineseness. And this is something that wasn't really publicly. There was a lot of this going on at the time in terms of rallies, people talking about uh, the threat of China into Indonesia, about Chinese influence, uh, and a lot of it coincided with this, this anger by conservative uh, Muslim groups against. Ahok. And so, as a result, it's it's slightly unthinkable uh, to for us to think about a Chinese ethnic Chinese president of Indonesia. Mm. 
But nonetheless, he represented a figure who was, you know, he was uh, very, he is seen as having a large amount of integrity. Uh, both him and Jacoby uh, ran the, um, uh, ran Jakarta in a way which was seen to be um, highly professional. There was a, a staunch anti-corruption bent to their administration. And also, uh, he was seen as uh, just a, a rising star in terms of uh, the political mm. uh, map of Indonesia. And this cu- absolutely cut his career short. Uh, well, Samira, we did mention he's in jail for blasphemy charges, and, and considering he is a ethnic uh, Chinese Christian, uh, these charges, you know, are going to going to be on his record forever. But with with a rebranding, a changing of his name, is is that likely to help him in the future, or is this always going to be something against him? I mean, I think there's probably um, limited use in changing your name. I mean, you can kind of understand the impulse is kind of break with the past or whatever but people you know this was an extremely high profile case and people mm. are still going to know who he is and it's probably going to be hard to to shake the name and the uh all the kind of history that goes with it um and i guess also uh when you have a climate of of kind of um increasing use of blasphemy laws to silence political opponents and you know that's one of the many huge problems with blasphemy laws um it's a clear restriction on freedom of speech and they're very, very easy for the most part to manipulate and use for um, use for all sorts of means. You know, in, in Pakistan, there's a, a, they're often used to just kind of settle personal disputes because right. the burden of proof is extremely low, for instance. And so, you know, it's a kind of horrible restriction on free speech, which has no place in the modern world, really. Yeah. And you see not just... Um, not just AHOC, but other people um, being slapped with long jail sentences for, I mean, maybe not long in the scheme of jail sentences, but, you know, we're talking several years in prison for for saying something which um, has later been deemed offensive and Mm. so on. So I think that there's, um, he's clearly, you know, operating in a climate of increasing um, clampdowns on free speech with the use of blasphemy laws. uh, And so you can kind of understand the impulse to rebrand. Yeah, fair enough. mm. Uh, His apology Mm. did seem pretty heartfelt, though, in in a born-again sort of way. Is this a, is a place where uh, the public could be more forgiving? What do you think? Uh, it's very hard to see where he would go after this because he, he was already a member of the um, House of Representatives. I don't think that he would be able to successfully uh, contest the governor's election yeah. in uh, Jakarta. Uh, what's interesting to me is that, <clears throat> in, uh, as part of a more broader point about uh, what politicians do when they get into trouble, is that Ahok was also known for his, um, he, he was very uh, stubborn stubborn and kind of strong-willed, uh, which is uh, his initial reaction to, the, to being uh, threatened with blasphemy charges uh, was actually one of uh, defiance. And here we have him uh, doing what I think politicians do all over the world, which is to, well, perhaps in many, many mm-hmm. uh, democratic countries, uh, which is to um, really try to uh, appear earnest in their apologies and to really start anew. Because there was a lot of discussion of how this has changed his life for the better. I, I see myself in a better light now. And um, I think that's, uh, this is, uh, he's just going through the motions as a politician trying to get back on track. If we think about yesterday, I heard um, that uh, just a change uh, countries altogether. But Joe Biden, right, uh, of among Democrats in the United States right now, has the uh, mo- is the most favorable candidate. Uh, has the um, least unfavorables against him. Mm-hmm. And Joe Biden, when he first ran for president, was you know he was embroiled in this plagiarism uh, case and completely discredited, and came back and now appears that in the next contest he he might be the mm-hmm. Democratic uh, nominee. So, 
Well, the part of the world we're looking at, uh, Samira, do, do you see this uh, for Ahok as, as, a, as a place where he can rebuild his career at all? Can he come back? Yeah, as um, as Carlos says, it's kind of um, it's it's difficult to know, and it's clear that that very heartfelt apology, where I think he said it was better that he'd been in jail than being governor of Jakarta because he'd learnt much more, um, which is quite an extraordinary thing to say. Mm. Really, it's very clear that that's aimed at launching a, a political comeback. Um, but I guess when you have, uh, you know, as as Carlo mentioned, already um, rising tensions not only over religious division but also his ethnic mm. background. Um, that's a kind of quite heavy burden to be fighting against, as well as a kind of personal scandal and conviction. Well, it's funny. Uh, I just saw in the in the Wall Street Journal today that, that um, a very uh, conservative Muslim cleric uh, emerges as sort of the front runner for the next elections. And he, did he play a part in in putting uh, our friend Ahok in jail on these blasphemy charges? Um, Maraf Amin, he has uh, sort of come out on on top as as one of those those dark horses, perhaps. Oh yeah, he's the uh, the vice presidential candidate for mm-hmm. Jokowi, and I I think that in that in that regard, it it does somehow. Um, uh, explain Jacoby's decision uh, to pick him uh, as his vice, president, uh, vice presidential candidate. He wanted to, Jacoby himself actually has in the past uh, been, his credentials as a believing Muslim have been uh, called into question. Uh, and he is, a, he, he's for the most part a fairly secular uh, candidate. He doesn't actually uh, do well when we look at his policies about religious uh, freedom. So that might be that complicates the depiction of him as a, a kind of as a defender of secularism. But his choice in this regard is for the vice presidency uh, was seen as trying to bolster his Islamic mm. credentials in the face of a campaign uh, run by uh, Prabowo Subianto uh, that would certainly try to play the religion card if they could. Because the the thing that that Prabowo would love to do is to have the same intensity of protests against Jokowi that he could against, that they mustered up against um, Ahok. This will never happen for a variety of reasons, uh, but uh, certainly to preempt this, uh, Amin was chosen as the vice presidential candidate. So this is the environment that Indonesian politics is in. Right Fascinating to watch. A country we don't often get to talk about, but one we shall be watching ahead of that uh, next election, hopefully. Uh, finally today, we look to Singapore, where British manufacturing giant Dyson has announced it will be moving its headquarters. The official line is that it has nothing to do with Brexit. And even though the company's founder, James Dyson, was a, a supporter of leaving the European Union, it's hard not to see this as a blow to the country's manufacturing industry after it leaves. Samira, uh, how is this not about Brexit? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the argument that Dyson uh, has put forward is that uh, although the headquarters is uh, moving, that actually in practice means just two executives are moving and that uh, the 4,000 people that uh, Dyson employs in the UK will remain employed and they'll keep their jobs. However... Uh, you know, they, they said in this kind of mealy mouth statement that they wanted to future proof their business. And you must ask future proof against what, if not yeah. Brexit. <laughs> yeah. and, they they read know. more like Brexit proof to me exactly. when I saw it in the FT today. So. Exactly. And it's kind of, um, this is a guy who until recently, I mean, I, I don't know if he's, I don't think he's changed his position, but he's, he's said uh, several times uh, that no deal Brexit would be fine and good. And that I think in his <laughs> words, the EU will be queuing up to come to us. Uh, and then kind of takes his company away. So it's a real kind of case of not putting your money where your mouth Mm. is. And even if those jobs are remaining, I think the symbolism is really powerful. This is a company that has kind of staked its whole image on being British and not just having ideas in Britain, but uh, manufacturing in Britain and and so on and Mm. so on. Um, 
And so I think the symbolism of saying in order to future-proof, we need to be outside Britain yeah. is is hard to ignore. Well, they say a lot of the customers are in Southeast Asia, but um, is this just a shift of the company to make it a new tax base? I think that's part of it as well. Yeah, I think that's a, a driving force. Although if you think about the deals that uh, Amazon and uh, other very large corporations, Apple, have cut with the uh, with uh, inland revenue, it, you, it makes you wonder why uh, Dyson couldn't have the same type yeah. of deals, uh, paying such, such little tax. What, um, what uh, is interesting to me is the way in which Singapore has played, the role that Singapore as a concept has played in the Brexit debate uh, more generally. And this, is, I think, has been slightly lost in the coverage here because you have people like um, Jacob Rees-Mogg who continuously turn to Singapore when uh, the question of having to go back to WTO rules is in, invoked in the in the Brexit debate. And his argument is that Singapore is an open port. It has no tariffs. Uh, Britain could do the exact same thing. Uh, and he's not the only one who's uh, pointed to Singapore as the kind of model for the, a post-Brexit uh, Britain. Just to note, I did uh, look this up before I got here. The The UK takes in $3.4 billion, or excuse me, billion pounds in revenue every year from uh, its customs uh, Intake. So this is, you know, that money will have to come from somewhere. Three point four billion is not a huge amount, uh, but nonetheless, I think that uh, the Singapore model. Of course, Singapore comes with huge uh, numbers of foreign laborers as well. So mm. maybe that hasn't been uh, taken into consideration by Rees-Mogg. Samira, very, very briefly, what do you make of that Singapore comparison in, in the Brexit debate? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And um, there's definitely a lot of um, there, there's been a lot of rhetoric about making Britain into a sort of tax haven after mm. Brexit, which um, fills many of us with dread, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, very interesting stuff. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Samira Shackle and Carlo Bonura, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show pr- produced by Bill Ludi, Research by Martha Libri, our studio manager, Mr. David Stevens. More music next, and then at 1900 hours, 30 minutes from now, it is The Entrepreneurs with yours truly. This week, a chat with Sophia Fenichel, founder of best-selling illustrated children's book series, Mrs. Wordsmith. We'll have more on the day's main news stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200 with Paul Osborne, Midori House, back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time, 1300 in New York City. I'm Daniel Bates. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.